right, welcome to another edition of Reptile Fight Club. I'm Justin Julander, your host. Um, and with me, as always, wait, that he is not here. So with me, not today, is Chuck. <laughs> Chuck it's is true. not here today. We've got, it. we've got a couple wonderful guests, though. You may remember them from such episodes as <laughs> they've been on Fight Club before, so there won't be any strangers to the podcast. How's it going, guys? We got Mr. Phil Wolf, Mr. Casey Cannon. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having yeah, us thank on. For having us on. Yeah, yeah. I so I got a, a fun little text from Phil <laughs> the other night. <laughs> um, maybe a little backstories in order, but uh, maybe not. I don't know if you, <laughs> you want to disclaim that. The, all right. Let's just be let's just be blunt here. We're we're all adults. Uh, Casey <laughs> Cannon, Billy Hunt, and I were having an adult beverage on. Billy Hunt's patio on what was it Saturday night, and yeah. we just started talking about taxonomy. And I said some things, and Casey said some things, and Billy laughed to himself. And uh, we're like, we should fight about this. So I, uh, with no apprehension whatsoever, texted, texted Dr. Drewlander, "Hey, Casey Cannon, and I want to fight about taxonomy." And uh, the next morning, luckily, I got a response. So here yeah. we are, right, Casey? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. Hey, I, I like the passion. I like, you know, we're going to we're going to get into some good stuff. And I I've got my feelings, of course, you know, the disclaimer, none of us are taxonomists. So this is all fun and games, but hopefully we don't offend any true taxonomists. But hey, oh, we're going if, to if you're offended, then, you know, maybe you need to grow a thicker hide. Look, um, we're still going to read your papers. We're still going to love and cherish your papers and we're going <laughs> to preach about them, whether we like them or not. Well, well, some of them, yeah. Some, some I don't, I don't uh, get too warm, fuzzy feelings about. But you know, <laughs> yeah, that's. I guess that's the fun. But again, you know, we we this will be a this will be a fun thing. So thanks for being on, guys. Life treating you well. You uh, getting any uh, reptile activity lately, or much? No, not a thing, man. It's. It, I still got geckos that are cooling. Mm -hmm. I went later and. Uh, I decided not to cool Serastes mm. because I feel like I've only had them a year and I want to give them another year and make sure that things are going correctly. And uh, yeah. we'll just leave it at that. Do they take a while to adjust to this uh, side of the globe or? Not, not that I've ever experienced, but this is my first time really like, this is going to sound horrible, but really caring about them because mm -hmm. when they are set up right, they're so freaking hardy. They're, they're bulletproof. Mm. Nice. Um, so this time I'm really feathering temperatures and feeding them more than I probably normally would just kind of get some weight on them. And, um, I changed my hydration practices completely. So like they've only drank twice in the past since oof, like July. Yeah. So I'm really limiting moisture, limiting water and we'll see what happens. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah they're, I've always liked the Serastes. They're cool. I, 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 one of my favorite rattlesnakes is the Sidewinder. So, you know, anytime you have that kind of convergent evolution type thing, it's pretty sweet. Um, I, I, had, I, I'd never seen one in the wild for the longest time, you know, and I'd looked a few times and granted it was kind of like passing through and I'd sw swing by through an area, like dragging my family out in the desert at three in the morning, looking you know, for reptiles in the middle of nowhere. Why my wife's freaking out. Like, where are we? This is, this looks sketchy, you know? And, uh, I, I saw, you know, a couple plastered on the road, but I hadn't seen a, a live one. And then I did a couple trips down to Southern California and like, there was no shortage of sidewinders. I probably saw 20 or 30 in one in my first trip. And so it went from zero to 30 pretty quick. And then, um, this last couple of times I've been down there, the, yeah, 
plentiful supply. I don't know how I didn't see them before because I was in some of the same areas. It's like they're everywhere out here. Like, you know, you're almost like, oh, it's just another sidewinder. You're like, what am I saying? Yeah. Get out. It's like Nerodi in the Southeast. Yeah. And I was, I was, I was rolling along and I noticed there was a car on the side of the road. I'm like, oh, some other herpers. So I'm like, you know, stop by. Hey guys, what's going on? And and the guy turns around and he's holding a sidewinder. He's free handling it in his hands. I'm like, oh yeah, you guys have a good night. I'm out of here. I'm not having anything to do with you guys. You know, oh my gosh. And I'm like, you're free handling it. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. We do it all the time. It's they're, they're pretty calm. I'm like, still you know that's you're, crazy you're ruin it for the rest of us dude yeah oh uh, i didn't even so, know that there were so many subspecies or localities that until i talked to uh matt mcdowell he's a sidewinder aficionado mm-hmm. he's kept a handful and bred him a couple times over the years and he's an arizona guy yeah and he's like oh dude there's not only is there localities but there's subspecies involved and i was like wow this is a rabbit hole i've not even known about so yeah <laughs> right cool little buggers man yeah they've done some i, I have a hard time keeping up with crotalis uh taxonomy they they've done quite a few changes and it's been a little uh yeah i guess that leads us into our topic maybe but it it does because it just goes to that whole thing of people liking the subspecies name and they just drop the species yeah yeah sometimes but and sometimes that's appropriate you know like obviously with the wheeler eye and synctus there was enough data to show that you know it's time to elevate those species but you know i think for a long time uh herpers had kind of known that and yeah and I, people in the, in the captive world the captive breeding and everything we already called them that as it is so yeah, it's not like yeah. anything changed for a us big change yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so and, and i think you know things go back and forth all the time i think oh, yeah well okay i'm gonna save it you guys you guys get into it so <laughs> hey, casey what, you got any coals in the fire right now so this is my first year trying to breed ball pythons. So I'm getting a bunch of ball oh. python lots. You mean blah, blah, royal blah. pythons? Royal pythons. <laughs> yeah, There's nothing royal. royal about those animals. They're I don't like majestic them. Really royal pythons. Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I've I cooled down uh, some Sanzania boas. I cooled down the Brettles pythons. Mm-hmm. I'm in a new room right now, and I don't know how to work that room like I knew how to work my old room. So mm. I'm not really. It, it's too hot. It's way too dry. Um. I mean, I'm seeing stuff cuddling right now, but it's March 3rd right now, and I have not seen a single Brettles Python lock, which is bizarre for me. Yeah. Like, any any know, idea? Just the room you're thinking, or I think it's the I think the room's just too warm because mm, yeah. I mean I know people say like oh you know you have to get things into the rhythm of the room. I think that that is a more complicated topic than mm. people say because I could bring an adult female Brettles Pythons into my old setup. And like this time of year, like April, May, whenever I'd have eggs this time next year from her. Mm-hmm. The problem is I don't know how to work this new room. So I'm having a hard time with like established older animals yeah. that just don't like how hot it is. Don't like the look. I don't know what they don't like, but I'm also having an issue where I think I've kept my males too skinny. You think I'm, like I'm new, having to like feed males while I'm doing this? I look at them like you guys are way too thin. Hmm. Yeah, but I know how dry it is in there because I'm having issues with, uh, especially like my male Sanzania boa and uh, my male Sonoran gopher snake. They're having issues in that room where they get a uh, stuck shed on their eyes, like mm-hmm. they get eye caps stuck on them. Yeah. So I know there's just an issue there. So I got to figure out how to cool it down a little bit. So I hope I get some brettles pythons because that'd be really embarrassing for me if I get ball python clutches and no brettles pythons <laughs> yeah like i literally set this up to be my big my biggest year ever i yeah. had 
like multiple blue tongue skink pairings. I only got two females locked with them. I have no idea how to read those animals. So maybe they're gravid, maybe they're not. I'd be mm-hmm. a ba- I'd, I'd cry if I got baby blue tongue skinks. Like <laughs> I would cry. Yeah. Um, I was gonna try a pair of Sonoran gopher snakes. Um, I think that female's ready to go. The males having issues with stuck eye caps on him. Sanzinia uh, mm-hmm. last year they would lock up for like days at a time. And this year, I have not seen a single lock out of them. Uh, Brettles, they're cuddling. It's way late. Like, I should be seeing multiple locks by now, but they're cuddling now. So, yeah. who knows? Yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know. I feel for you, because that was my year last year. We moved, and I built my new reptile room, and I'm really happy with it. But there are some things I'm still learning and trying to tweak. And it, it's almost like it's too hot in there. I've got it too well insulated, and... But I can also open a window and let in some really cold air in northern Utah, you know, so it's not too hard to cool things down if I want to. Yeah. But I, I usually have to run the AC pretty much all winter or all summer. So, yeah, it's kind of a yeah. And all, none of my carpets went last year, but I, I know I've got a gravid jungle female and hopefully a couple inlands. I've, I've paired them up and saw some locks. And so hopefully that's the case. And I'd like to have a couple other uh, carpets go as well, but we'll see how it goes. You never, you never know until the eggs are on the ground, I suppose. But I mean, my jungle female is about ready to pop. She looks really big. And then I've got a couple aspidites. My female blackhead, Western blackhead is very large. She's getting close. And then a female woma, the eggs are actually approaching, you know, moving down and getting ready to be laid. So I'd expect those pretty much any day. So hopefully it'll, it'll work out. That's the issue of that room though, is the second I turned on the heat, Mm -hmm. that room went from like 40 to 60% humidity to like 10. Like you can make beef jerky in that room. Yeah. Yeah. So even for species from a very dry environment, like most things I keep, Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I keep the more wet species in racks, so like I'm able to just to pour water on the cypress mulch. Yeah, yeah, that's that's helpful. Yeah, I mean that's that's the story of the life down here in Utah is just yeah. very low humidity. It's very crappy, but in some ways, but in other ways, it's kind of nice. Yeah, I think, and I think some species adapt better to that or do better in you know no humidity situations than they do in very humid situations. So especially if you're keeping desert species, but. I don't know. Listen to Ron St. Pierre, though. I've kind of rethought that with all the, you know, dew and talk of, of dew point and that kind of thing. I've, I've been spraying some of those desert animals at night, you know, getting them, getting them that moisture in, in the evening or in the morning, that kind of thing. But Yeah. Eventually when I have the, uh, pseudocerastes all set up in like a real enclosure, cause they're in, they're in crap now, mm-hmm. but it, I'm waiting on cages from black box. And, uh, when I do, I think I'm going to do a, I think I'm going to put a mist king on them mm-hmm. for like four seconds every day, <laughs> 25 minutes before the sun comes up. Yeah. Right. You so know, they just can a little, get that. Yeah. Cause it's going to mm-hmm. get over a hundred degrees in there by yeah. 9am, you know, so it'll mm-hmm. just zap that out. So yeah. I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try that. That's probably a wise thing to do. I, I saw um, a tortoise breeder that had set up a little uh, humid hide area where they pumped in, you know, a mist king flow into a little hide box so the tortoise could go in there and get high, you know, and get that hydration, humidity, like a false burrow type situation. And I'm like, that's ingenious, you know, and, you know, they, they're showing that that's more, more of the cause of pyramiding than like the diet and things like that. So it's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was actually thinking about doing like a fogger, 
like I can't remember who makes it, but the one that has the clear hose, it's like an accordion yeah. hose, do the fogger, but have it come in at the bottom. So it's just a layer of fog on the bottom. So it uh -huh. like sticks to rock and stone and stuff. Yeah. Maybe for like five or 10 seconds just to get the fog in there and then stop. Yeah. Just see what, yeah. see what, you know, condenses into do. Yeah. Get that kind of layer. I mean, anytime you wake up in the desert, you're oftentimes coated with dew, you know, and that's yeah. very important, yeah. I think, to those desert reptiles. So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that ever since I heard Ron's episode. I need to figure out how to make it practical, you know, yeah. so you're yeah. not having to buy a Miss King for every cage or something that might get sure, a little sure. pricey. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Well, you guys ready to, to do some fighting? Yeah, let's kick the tires and light the fires. Okay, sounds good. Um, let's go ahead and do the, the traditional coin toss to see what side you get <laughs> pro or anti taxonomy. That's what we're going to be chatting about today. What, you know, whether taxonomy is just a load of dung or, or if it's actually a wonderful institution. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, who wants to call it? Casey call it. I think right. it always is heads. So let's do heads. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Cause Chuck claims it's always tails. So. And it's tails. <laughs> so, Phil, you get to choose what side you're you're going. I'm going to take the pro. I'm going to take taxonomy. Is awesome. Okay, taxonomy is a wonderful institution. Or I'm going to play the part or... as a belligerent anti-taxonomist for this. <laughs> I guess uh, you need a long mustache so you can curl it. You know, yeah. The anti. Oh, see, Phil, you picked the wrong side. You got the yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, I guess you can curl it in anticipation of supporting taxonomy. Maybe, maybe the taxonomy is the ill institution that's yes. the yes. side. All I right. Well, as as the coin toss winner, you get to decide if you go first or second, Phil. You want to lead oh, Casey's, go, Casey's going first. Oh, I'm going first? Okay. 100%. All right. 100%. All right. I think the biggest thing people need to remember about taxonomy is that it's not a science. It is a system of classification that uses science, human opinion, and like a general idea of how animals look and how animals act. So much of it comes down to the opinions of scientists, and it changes all the time. To the mm -hmm. point where the whole idea of taxonomy when it was created in 1758 was we'll all talk about the same animals and we're all going to know what we're talking about because we're all going to use Latin and there'll be no confusion and we'll know exactly how they like how related to each other. And the problem is it doesn't do any of that where <laughs> you read a piece of paper from, I don't know, 30 years ago and they'll be talking about. I don't know. For some reason, all Antaresia are um, liasis. <laughs> liasis, yeah, or yeah. something like that. So, or yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, to name a new species, you also have to go through every single old museum specimen to make sure that somebody in 1812 didn't find one of these, put it in a jar, and give it a name, and then that's the name it has to be because it's the oldest one. Hmm. And I mean, the way you find uh, it, the way you name a new species is what it has to be published and sent out a uh, hundred different places, a hundred miles away from the place the uh, paper was published at. Isn't that how it is? That's um, like I the think, old, and this is from 1758. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has to be distributable, distributable to to people who are interested. You know, it can't just be you you publish it and hide that away in your in your closet or something, right? It has to be freely available to other people interested so 
Yeah. Yeah. That can, I mean, and back in the day, it posed a big problem. Now it's really easy and you can make up your own journals and you can have your own, you know, uh, yeah, you can steal something and name it after whoever you want to name it after. And your dog, for instance. Yeah. You name it after your dog or, yeah. you know, your favorite high school English teacher or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I can, I so, I mean, the whole thing really seems to me is the biggest problem with taxonomy is we're using this ancient system that was invented before evolution, before we knew anything about heritability, before we knew anything about DNA. Mm-hmm. And instead of changing it and adapting it like we should, which is we should probably scrap it and get rid of it, we're doing the classification equivalent of strapping a jet engine on a horse-drawn buggy because we're afraid to change anything. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a very uh, interesting take. Let's hear what Phil yeah, has Okay, to say an interesting that. take. First of all, it was 1758. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, so 1758. And your your ideas, although sound, I must disagree with because yes, there is a lot of opinion, but the opinion basis is of those of a modern way of thinking who are not subscribing to the rules of taxon because when Linnaeus wrote this out he had rules and steps and guidelines and there are classes to this day that people can take on how to perform the acts of taxonomy appropriately so you have to follow the rules whether it be naming itself or combining ancient greek and, and latin or just the way that you catalog what you're describing there are rules. And even though we have DNA, those rules still apply. So we can take in the modern world, in the 21st century, we can take the ancient, because we will call it ancient, right? We'll take the ancient rules of taxon and we combine them with the modern way of thinking with DNA and scale counts and whatever, feather arrangement, however you want to phrase it. And we combine the two together and we Mm -hmm. extrapolate the data that we have. Now, DNA is awesome if you're using the right kind of DNA, right? Because I can do DNA for one thing, I can do DNA for another and get different results from the same animal. So, and at the same time, we're still in our infancy of DNA. So, you know, in the next 20, 30, 50 years, it's gonna be infinitely better. And we may get to the point where we say, you know what, Casey was right. The rules of taxon per Carl Linnaeus is caca. And we'll just go off of the numbers on the, on the spreadsheet and the numbers in the pie graph. But until that, is a definitive, which it never will be because science is always adapting and always evolving. We have to stick to the rules that were originally described, right? And originally laid out for us to use as a template, if you will. And if people want to alter the template, that's cool, If but they still have to stick to the template. So to say that it's a bunch of nonsense, well, the whole point of it is describing things. It's cataloging, right? Because we as humans need the classification. We we as humans need the cataloging of everything, right? So that we can tell the difference between one thing and another. Mm -hmm. So I feel that taxonomy is a, a, a very big thing in our world, right? As well as the ancient world, because we can't really know how things were unless we look back, right? And how do things get their names? Well, there's rules and there's a system of guides to go back to what it was. Um, you know, Scott Iper sent me a, a, a clip it from a book once and uh, hmm. sorry, there's a plane going over my head, guys. <laughs> no worries. Scott yeah. Iper sent me a clipping from a book that basically said you can change an animal's name 
as long as it's changed correctly. And that is paying homage to the first describer or paying homage to the person that discovered it. And yeah, you can name it after someone's dog, but that's not part of the rules. <laughs> so if we change Bufo to Ranella, the reason why we change Bufo to Ranella is because Ranella was the first name. And now we're going back to the original because we've decided that it's completely different and we're reclassifying it. So yeah, there's a lot of opinion there, lumpers, splitters, all that jazz, but when it comes down to brass tacks, there is a template, there are rules, and they must be followed to be done correctly. And we can add DNA and add modern science to that. Yeah, I, one of those examples that I was kind of excited about, but that I had to lose that excitement was the the Owen Pelly Python, where they did the new work, found out it was kind of more aligned with the carpet python clade, gave it the cool name Noiran, which is the aboriginal name for the Owen Pelly Python, but then another group came out and said, nope, you can't do that. You got to go back to Nick to Philo Python, <laughs> the, the, the big, long, weird sounding name. Uh, so I was, I was kind of hoping for Noiran to take hold. Yeah. And, and, didn't and that goes, that's the same way as like Ayers Rock and Uluru, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, to Uluru, some extent. Yeah. Right. So, so Ayers Rock was given a name by settlers who had come there and they didn't start it there. They weren't there for millennia, mm -hmm. you know? So the population who is running the joint decides unanimously, okay, we're going to name it Uluru because mm -hmm. that's its correct name. If something like that happened in taxonomy, I wouldn't be against it. Yeah, yeah. it broke the rules, but it's still, if everyone's in agreement with it, rock and roll. Yeah. But then yeah. it goes to that's everyone's in agreement to it <laughs> following the same guidelines and trying to get everybody to agree on one thing is very very difficult and yeah, well, i think yeah. that was the one of the problems is that this that nictophilo python was named by wells and wellington who were seen as kind of outsiders and you know usurpers to the australian taxonomy and so a lot of australian taxonomists kind of ignored a lot of the names that they proposed even though after a while most adopted you know and, and they're generally uh widely used today but yeah, that's it's a tricky thing. All right, Casey, you gave a, you gave you a lot of a lot of stuff to respond to. Wish I'd written more of it down. <laughs> so when you keep coming back to saying it has to follow the rules, it has to fit inside these boxes because that's what humans want to do. That's not what nature does. Nature doesn't fit in boxes. Nature doesn't want to follow any of your <laughs> like preconceived notions of these two are going to run, run parallel to each other and they're different things. They're not. They want to cross. They're going to cross because yeah. nature's messy. It's static. It's liquid. Nature finds and a way. <laughs> yes, life finds a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you even go back with extinct species. Then it's like a whole nother level of messed up where we don't know if like the population over here, you know, we don't know if like Homo habilis or get your phone. You know, looking over like ancient humans, we don't know if Homo habilis is one species or multiple species covered off over, you know, multiple areas because it can be separated by millions of years. Is this one from 3.1 million years ago the same species as one from like 1.1? I don't know. So, again, we're trying to use this whole system of classification not only for modern animals but also for bacteria, which bacteria don't make any sense for taxonomy because how do you even figure out how to define a species in something that reproduces asexually? 
you know, how do you try to class? I mean, this is your thing, Justin. How do you even classify carpet pythons? Because you can look at it. It's like, yeah, there's dream, there's gene flow all up and down the entire coast of Australia without a lot of barriers. I mean, there's a few, mm-hmm. but it's like a thousand years ago. Did those barriers really exist? Or did they really matter? And then you can also say like, hey, carpet pythons are all, you know, my opinion is all carpet pythons are one race. Oh, <laughs> that's not my opinion right now. I'm going to explain sure. my opinion on carpet pythons where <laughs> I can understand that argument. Mm-hmm. You, I have a very, very hard time accepting that a Papuan carpet python from the southern tip of New Guinea and a diamond python from the northern part of Victoria are the same thing. Mm-hmm. DNA wise, they may be in taxonomically taxonomically you can say like yeah okay they're the same thing but (laughs) if you throw one in the habitat of the other it's gonna die so you know that's the confusing thing is okay they they should probably have the same name they should you know maybe there should be a subspecies distinction i think there probably should because you know in my opinion if you have two animals that can't survive in the same habitat you need to have some kind of distinction there but Obviously, you know, genes aren't everything, you know, and we've seen yeah, a lot genes of aren't everything and we can try to fit things into cute little boxes and, you know, give our, give two little Latin names for everything and say, this is how it works. But yeah. that's not how nature works. And that was a little bit of a tangent. I should have taken notes or something. <laughs> on Phil's talk, but That's all right. I, I rambled earlier too, <laughs> but what I, what I, to combat that is you're proving my point is that it doesn't matter if all carpet pythons are the exact same animal on DNA and have less than 1% divergence, which I'm not saying they do, but imagine they did. You could still categorize them differently per the rules of taxonomy, right? So if you look at certain fishes or certain birds that are all the same species, but they look very different, like we consider them localities or races, right? Mm-hmm. But There is no definitive rule as to what percentage of divergence dictates a new species. One might say it's 1%, like in humans. One might say it's 11%, like in chondropythons, or excuse me, Morelia viridis and whatever else they want to call it. But what's that? Azuria, yeah. Azuria, right? Yeah, Polcra or however it is. Oh, yeah, they got the subspecies too. (laughs) So, So what I'm saying is, is that you you can have two snakes, right? One from Australia and one from Papua New Guinea. And you could DNA test them and they come the same DNA. But one lives in the arid desert and one lives in the lush jungle. And if you flip-flopped them, they would not survive appropriately without long-term evolution and help from something. They're different species. And why are they different species? Because we've taken the attributes of each individual specimen or each individual animal. We've then applied the, the laws and rules of taxonomy and we're describing them as such so that if someone walks up and says, uh, this one's red and it lives in the desert. So that's brettles. And this one is brown and black and lives in the jungle. So that's spilota. Okay, cool. And now I know the difference, right? For whatever reason. So we need taxonomy to differentiate these things. Because if I come into, I'm a zookeeper and I'm new and someone says, oh, here's a python. Take care of it. I don't know what kind of python it is. 
we need describing on a scientific level. We need taxonomy to differentiate things, to catalog things, to understand how things work, to better progress. No one's saying that that can't change. It should change because science is always adapting and always evolving and always expanding, right? A, a great a great scientist will never speak in definitives, right? Yep. So <laughs> because true. of that, we need taxonomy. Maybe. <laughs> we need classification in our world. All right. What do you got, Casey? No, I mean, I can, I can agree that we need classification. Things obviously are, you know, there's obviously different branches in nature where there needs to be some form of a distinction. Mm -hmm. The issue is, again, the rules are different for everything. I mean, you look at black bears in North America. Yeah, but they're not supposed to be different. They're supposed to be the same. It's, it's yeah, people not following the template. But the templates seem to be different for whatever group you're in. I mean, think about it like this. Black bears in North America, right? You have a bunch of different subspecies, one of which lives in British Columbia, and it is white. That's the only difference between it and the other bears in that area, and it's a mm -hmm. different subspecies. It has a recessive gene that makes it white, and it is a different subspecies. <laughs> you can have one subspecies and another subspecies from the same mom. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say birds are different because they make a different sound. You know, yeah. birds in one valley make a different call than birds in another valley because it echoes better. Hmm. Yeah, but, but but you're but you're you're focusing on one attribute. You know what I mean? And if the taxonomists aren't, I'm not. The taxonomists are. Yeah, but then, if that is their one defining thing, then I, dare I say so be it? Because I'm on the side. I have to say so be it. <laughs> but it doesn't. That doesn't one thing different doesn't necessarily mean that it should be a different species. That hence why it's a subspecies. You know, if it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and flies like a duck, but it has furry feet, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not a duck. It's just a different type of the same duck. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. I, so, I think, like, as you know, as a, a scientist, I. I sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll admit that sometimes there's, you know, that bias that, that creeps its way into science, you know? And so you, you know, like, like the bear example, um, they're excited because there's something different and there's something new and they want to make that special or maybe give it a, a subspecific status to, to, you know, have different protection levels on that population where right, right. if they don't have theory. that status, then they, they may not be protected. But I, but I agree there that that's pretty bunk science. If it's due to a recessive gene, they should not be different subspecies <laughs> from each other just because of a, a single recessive gene. But, you know, I, I can kind of see like if, if, if you have something that has a distinctive call and it prevents them from interbreeding, you know, because they don't recognize the call as coming from their own species, maybe that's enough to, to be a species. And it's, it's a tricky and complex thing, you know, and, and I think that's, I think that's part of it. And I think that's one of the points Casey's um, making there is that, you know, uh, it's it's very difficult to apply a broad set of rules to such specific and different things. You know, thing species or groups of of animals uh, may evolve at different rates, and so you know, one percent in one species may not be equivalent to you know one percent in another group of of species or animals. You know, um, 
insects that reproduce very rapidly may have an evolutionary, you know, they may evolve more rapidly versus like an elephant that only has a baby, you know, every several years and when they're mature, you know, that kind of thing. So obviously they're going to have a different evolutionary rate than a, than a beetle or something that just, sure. So how to make a a broad rule that applies to everything is is a challenge. Yeah. But the problem is, is that we're the three of us right now in the, in the case of the beetle or the elephant or the white black bear, we're talking about, and again, this someone's going to yell at me for this. I don't care. We're talking about one or a couple people, humans, who are splitters who wanted to get their name on Wikipedia or a splitter who says, this animal needs to be protected. So I'm going to make it its own animal, <coughs> king cobras, <coughs> excuse me, and we're going to make them all protected and no one can touch them and boom, because now they're all different species. So there could be a thousand of those bears on this one island and the 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 uh density of population is thriving and it's fantastic but because there's two bears on this other island now all of a sudden those two bears are endangered because we made them endangered we said they're endangered and at the same time we're not following the checklist we just decided because of you know steve ranella cute and cuddly theory right oh it's cute and cuddly so we have to save it well if it wasn't cute and cuddly you wouldn't feel the same way per se right some of us would but then at the same time you have they're not following the checklist, right? So is it still a duck, even though it has furry feet? Or is it its own thing? Because it's furry and cute. I don't know. I, I remember using this analogy the other night where I feel like taxonomy is a lot like a, a measuring system, right? So think about it like a thousand years ago when you were going to build a house or something like that. You would say, okay, this wall is 14 hand lengths tall. And that's how you would describe it. The cubits. Problem we, is, we, we, said we cubits, all have right? three different sized hands. Our, between the three of us, all of our hands are different sizes. So there is not the level of... Uh, what word am I trying to look for right here? It's not as specific. Precision. It's not, preci- mm-hmm. it's not as precise. Right. You know, eventually we start using the, the imperial system, which changed with every king, where he said, this is the king's foot. So every time we get a new king, we're going to use the king's foot. So you have a different foot <laughs> in England and France and Denmark and all that stuff. And of course, they're conflating it, which is how we got our feet. Because, I mean, I don't think the king had a 12-inch foot. But you really <laughs> want your enemies to think that. So you say, this is what we use. We use the king's foot. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, hate to say it because we're all Americans here. Imperial system kind of sucks for a lot of reasons. <laughs> so. I Eventually, we jumped over to the metric system, which makes a lot more sense. So I feel like as far as taxonomy goes, we're still stuck in the days where you're using like, okay, this animal is seven hand lengths different than the other animal. And (laughs) there's not the level of precision. There's not the exact rules. There's not anything like that that needs to exist. But but there is. I mean, I like that analogy. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a, a, an interesting way to look at it. Cause now we, you know, we've 
refined our way of measurement. And sometimes we get we get uh, a little fixated on the new system of measurement. So, we're, you know, we, we might have gotten rid of the king's foot, but now we've got, you know, our meters and centimeters and millimeters. And so we're trying to get in there with a millimeter and, you know, measure it and say, okay, it's this many millimeters long. And you're like, well, just use meters, you know? It's, yeah, it's, but, right, so, thing, yeah. so I agree, right? Divisible of 36 makes sense. I get that. And Casey's analogy of using the king's hand, the king's foot, that makes sense. I get that. Napoleon had tiny feet. I grasp it. But <laughs> here's my thing. We use a foot, right? So 12 inches. So now if we break that down, right, instead of doing, you know, uh, we're just keeping it fractions. Let's keep it fractions because I'm not a math guy. But if we use like minute of angle, MOA, right? So one MOA is one inch at 100 yards distance, okay? If I break that down, I say quarter MOA, that is one quarter of an inch, at visible at 100 yards. So now we've incorporated fractions of a unit of measurement at distance. Is it as good as metric? No, metric's way better. It's way more precise. But if we all know that one MOA is one inch at 100 yards, then we're all in the same boat. And no one's saying that taxonomy isn't on the same boat. It's certain individuals choosing it not to be. So if we're going to the white bears thing, right? Everyone says, oh, man, it's it, this says it's a black bear. This says it's a black bear. Man, it's got 14 things on this, you know, Linnaean chart that says, okay, this is crap. This is a black bear. But it's different. It just, you know what? It's got that white thing at the bottom, the gene. You know what? Just just make it different. That's not, that's not good taxonomy. That's still taxonomy because we're cataloging things, right? We're classifying things. We're describing things. It's mm-hmm. a describing art. Doesn't mean it's always correct which is why as scientists and as taxonomy, we evolve and we adapt and we change and we progress, right? So I think that even though I agree, metric is way better than imperial, we're still on the same boat with the imperial stuff in that regard. So I think that as long as someone's keeping to the Linnaean checklist, so to speak, then there can't be any issues. I guess it's the people that don't that cause the issues, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But it seems like every group has their own distinct rules for their own animals. I mean, we've talked about it or it's been talked about on this podcast, I think where, mm-hmm. like, okay, the Python guys are trying to split everything apart in a lot of cases. I mean, the new Antaresia paper kind of disagrees <laughs> with that, yeah. but all monitors are in Varanus. They're all in the same genus. Like mm-hmm. why is a, why is a Savannah monitor, a Kimberly rock monitor, a Komodo dragon and you know, a green tree monitor from Biot. Why are all, why are they all the same genus? They Because we haven't got there yet. Well, I mean, there's guys there right now, but they all seem to agree that's the rules for this weird group of lizards where they should well, then, all belong to the same genus, even though they're completely different from each other. But if they're following the checklist, then that's it. But they invented their own checklist. <laughs> and I guess, I guess, you know, if, if I can see kind of where it could go either way where, okay, so if you see a, a lizard and you, you, you know what a veranid is, you look at it, you're like, that's a veranid, you know, you, it, it has a, a very useful label because it fits in to some extent with the other relatives and whether you break it down into different subgen, you know, subfamilies or, uh, subgenera, um, where they, you know, they have a bunch of different subgenera that they use, um, you know, it's still the same, same thing, same animal, same 
you know, relation, you're just saying, okay, instead of at this broad level, you're just focusing it in a little bit, but it's still, you know, uh, it's still a Glauerti, you know, you still got a Kimberly rock monitor, whether it's Varanus or what's the, um, uh, Odatria, you know, Glebopalma, it's this, or sorry, uh, Glauerti, it's the same thing, right? <laughs> so it, it, I guess the question is, is it different? Is a Glauerti from, um, the, from Arnhem land different than a Glauerti from the Kimberly, um, you know, that then, then that's where maybe taxonomy can kind of shed some light or, or help us understand. Um, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I agree with you to some extent, but at the same time, it's like, well, a label's a label, whether it's a, you know, a specific label. And so I, I guess that's where I kind of like, if there's a difference, like just saying everything's Morelia Spilota. Well, obviously, like you said, there's huge differences between a diamond python, a brettles, uh, you know, a Papuan python, a carpet python, and, and you know, also, it just goes on. And, you know, there's some pretty deep divergences within, you know, between those different things. But yeah, so there, there was gene flow in the last 5 million years. So that means they're all the same. You know, I, I don't know about that either. So it's really hard to to define where the cutoff is. And and I think that's what's maybe led to all these scientists kind of saying, well, we need to define it somehow. So this is what we're doing for our group. Um, it's frustrating, but that's kind of it. I don't know. What do you guys yeah, think? I, I think I think the Varanid thing was a great a great point. I really do. Because if whether you're looking at Varanids or, you know, what, look at crocodilians, okay? So you have crocodiles, caimans, gharials, tomistema, alligators, right? Mm -hmm. They're all crocodilians. They all look very, very similar. But to the trained eye, they are completely different. I think all of us could look at all, was it 26 we're up to now? 26 crocodilians? Something like 25 maybe? Someone's going to yell at me about this. You're asking the wrong guy. Right. (laughs) So let's say we look at all 20-something crocodiles. We could, all three of us combined could probably name all of them, even though none of us are crocodilian guys, right? Mm -hmm. But they're all crocodiles. They're all going to fall into one of those three or four groups, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the same concept as, yes, Varanus, Varanus, Varanus should be broken up, in my opinion. But if it doesn't meet the criteria of the Linnaean checklist, it doesn't matter what I think. It's the rules of taxonomy. It's the, the law of taxon, right? And we have to abide by that until you get somebody who disagrees and says, I don't like that. Screw it. Change it. So I got a question here. If there are such strong rules of taxonomy, what is the definition of a species? How do you know when something is one species and one is a different species? If you want, I will go get I will go get Carl Linnaean's book right now that is completely in Latin. My dumbass bought it online, not translated. And I will put on Google Translate and I will translate what he describes as a quote unquote species. I can't do it because I'm I'm not a taxonomist, but it's not our f- – how do I phrase this without sounding like an idiot? The person who decides to change it may be wrong until proven correct. Mm-hmm. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't – his his idea of a species that they can't interbreed and or they if they interbreed and have viable offspring they're they're the same species but if they can't then they're different species is that isn't that right i mean that's one species concept yeah wasn't that the original species concept concept. 
mm-hmm. which that even falls apart for a lot of, I mean, in my opinion, <laughs> yeah. the biggest reason that falls apart is now you got to throw things together and see if they can breed and produce fertile <laughs> offspring. Really? No, yeah. you know, we're going to like turn all our zoos into like Frankenstein projects just to see. Mm-hmm. But I mean, according to those rules though, then most pythons are the same species. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, well, they, they, they have that cavity viable offspring. Mm-hmm. At, I mean, you can do that with bloods and balls and Burmese and balls and that stuff. Like, it's a little bit different when you get into the Morelia and uh, the Aspidites stuff. They get a little bit less fertile. Sure. But it's like, but they're still, okay, the males might not be super videos. fertile, but yeah. the females can lay eggs, no problem. Where does that mm-hmm. mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's one species concept. There's dozens more. I mean, the joke yeah. I've always heard is you ask 10 taxonomists, well, the definition of a species is you'll get 15 answers. <laughs> yeah. Because exactly. that concept doesn't work with the way nature actually functions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think that's a, a frustration of a lot of people is, you know, it's so hard because there is no, there is no measuring stick for what a species is because it can vary based on what group you're looking at, based on whose idea you're aligning yourself with. And if you're the kind of the lead of your group, you're one, the one that kind of designates how everything's going to be looked at. And, you know, that's why it's frustrating when somebody comes in like this Antaresia paper and says, nope, all, all Stimpsons are now children. I, and you're like, but wait a second, there's this clear and distinct differences between these things. And then they say, oh, by the way, there's an extra, you know, spotted python uh, species and a, and a subspecies of spotted python. So they go in and, and just, uh, it's almost like has no rhyme or reason to it. They're just like, oh, we're going to split this group. And, 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 you know, yeah, there's some, some DNA um, basis for it potentially, but that's the thing is like, you, you can kind of interpret it just about any way you want and make it fit with, with an outdated or outmoded species concept to, to be able to name something or to, you know, I don't know. I heard the same groups got their hands on the carpet Python. So that should be interesting to see what they come up with here in a, in a short, short bit, but I don't know. You got the, you got the species definition, Phil. <laughs> no, I actually my my alarm company for my work just called, so I walked away to, to pick that up. And okay, every, everything's good. That's There's good. nobody there. That's so good. yeah, um, no, I I I cut the last bit of that. My apologies. Um, it sounds good, but it also sounds like a bunch of people trying to make a name for themselves. You know, and <laughs> I mean that's what a lot of taxonomy is too. I know, but that's what it, that, but that's not what it should be. Yeah, it's it not. should be for the benefit of science cataloging and describing species to the best of our ability to not not to definitively do it but to the best of our ability and if it is to be changed or augmented or altered in the future that's fine that's that's science the the lifelong hypothesis right but guys are still gonna whack it up however they want to do it or lump it all together however they want to do it and that's not that's not good. That's not right. If, if it is proven, all right, let's do this. The Antaresia paper, right? I have not read it. I will. They did a lot of stuff that nobody liked, right? What if they agreed with everyone's thoughts? Yeah. I mean, they did, they did agree with some of my thoughts. I mean, obviously some of the populations of Stimson's pythons aligned more closely with, with children's pythons. And I, I believe some of the, the range that was, traditionally uh stimson's python should have been you know combined with with uh 
children's Python, but then they, they took it and just applied it to everything because they said, oh, it can interbreed. Well, if that were the case, I mean, we look at our genome, we've got, yeah. you know, all these different uh, hominids within our genome showing that in the past we mated with these different hominids. So does that mean we're all just the same species? There's no Neanderthals? Well, There's no, so that's, that's good because I was going to bring that up is that yeah. Casey brought up the whole point of evolution, right? So however many millennia or tens of thousands or thousands of years it takes to evolve, there's no reason why a hybrid couldn't eventually be its own species, much like Homo sapien, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of how long do you wait or how long before you notice the checklist is different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's therein lies the rub, right? It's like we, we're, we're, we're taking a snapshot of what we have right now and what we're seeing right now. And then we're trying to apply things from millions of years ago that we may or may not understand how it was then. I mean, we find a fossil and we say, oh, we figured it out. But like Casey was saying earlier, is that just like some random fossil that was from a time when these two populations interbred and then now there's a mountain in between and they don't interbreed. So obviously now, today, they're clear species, whereas 10 million years ago, they might not have been. And so, you know, how do, how do you weigh that all in and how do you yeah, but what's, what's wrong that? with here's my thing i have no problem with taxonomy changing as long as it's changed following the rules of taxon so mm -hmm. if you've got two species that hybridize and then a volcano erupts and now the right side is isolated to the right and the left side is isolated to the left and they make their own individual species that's fine you can split i have no problem with that splitting up providing that they meet the criteria right and if they turn out that they don't meet the criteria, but they're still only breeding with each other on their separate left and right planes, well, then they're still the same species if they don't meet the criteria. <laughs> and if you want to add DNA to the criteria, that's cool. Do it. But that shouldn't be the, the, the scale tipping fact. If I've got a checklist of 20 things and 19 of them all say yes and 20 says no, that doesn't mean that it's no. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it could it could mean it's no. I mean, that's the that's the problem is, you know, you've, you've got like all these different patterns and things like that. But if you find out basically they're the same thing, they they occupy the same niche, they're just different colors or they're, they're different, you know, sizes or whatever, all all environmental factors. Maybe you do have, you know, nine yeses and one no and the one no outweighs the nine yeses. I, is that is that yeah, but how would it how would it outweigh it though? Like because like I'm point, saying, like size, diet, niche, you know, all these things. Does that make it? A, and then that was I, I kind of wanted to get back to that because uh, you guys were talking about that before about if you put a, a diamond python in a pop, you know, a, a Papuan carpet python, a New Guinea carpet python's uh, habitat, it would die and vice versa. Well, if you put an Eskimo in the middle of the Sahara desert, he'd probably die too. You know, it's like, does that mean yeah. they're different species because they're adapted to different environments over time? Yeah, but you can't, you can't, yeah, I don't you know can't specify, but you can't specify Homo sapien for two reasons. One, because people get upset by that, <laughs> insinuating that one is above another, right? But at the same time, humans are adapt humans can adapt to their surroundings while as some animals physically cannot 
Well, over time, they can. I mean, obviously. Well, that's what they, I'd say know, to that argument, yeah. though, is, yeah. okay, if you took a, a baby from, I don't know, from Yemen and then gave it to, like, I don't know, some of the First Nations people living up at the very top of, uh, like, Northwest Territory in Canada. Is that the name of that territory? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it's Northwest yeah, Yukon. Yeah, yeah, Yukon, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you gave it to them, that kid would probably survive. You know, it would have to learn how to do things as a parent, just like all humans do. But if you took a bunch of hatchling poplin carpet pythons, say you got four clutches of them, and you just threw them down into South Victoria, where that's all they know, they're still going to die. It's going to reach, you know, they're going to get snow one of those years, and they're going to die. Yeah, but you're just well, maybe. My point. Yeah, maybe you're one hangs on. My point. You know, because I was just saying humans have the ability to adapt. No, no, right? I, I can agree. With you. Yeah, so. I mean, obviously, Florida is not the best environment for Burmese pythons, but they've adapted to live there, and they they have freeze offs, and but they 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 persist, right? Right, but it's now a completely have, different environment than their feel, natural habitat. Yeah, yeah, but Myanmar is in most parts where pythons would inhabit. In my, I've never been to Myanmar, but I imagine from what I've seen, is very, very similar in terms of terrain and humidity and heat and cold as sub-peninsular Florida. Yeah, so but, I don't feel like that's a fair, you know, like that's not. But, exact. but, are, but are they adapting to a new species, or are they the same species as the ones? No, I'd say, I would say I would say they're the same species. But they they're are on now. Their, I mean, they're on their own trajectory to something. Yeah. They're sure. I yeah, that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that's how that's how evolution occurs, right? Is you have sure. some split up of groups, and then they evolve on their own uh, evolutionary trajectory, and then they become different over time. So, when do we when do we draw the line? I, I saw a cool study about this populations of, of lizards in in Russia, and they took them and put them on an island, and then there was some war, and they couldn't get out to the island. They came back 10 years later and the lizards had, had survived and had changed their uh, digestive tract and became basically vegetarians. Whereas on the mainland, they're more insectivorous and their gut length, had, uh, their guts had lengthened and you know, all these different adaptive changes had occurred in, in 10 years, you know, because life, life finds a way, you know, there's, yeah. they, they, they persisted somehow. So, I mean, those kind of things, um, you know, a lot of times I think we think of evolution in, in millions of years rather than 10 years, but yeah, I mean, if there's know, hard enough pressure, things change pretty quick. Yeah. Either they do or they disappear, you know, like that's the thing is, is they can change, but most of the time, like Phil was saying, they don't and they die out and they go away. But otherwise, but now if you wanted to, now let's say you had your checklist, you had your Linnaean checklist and you took the mainland Russian lizard and it's, you know, 10 points. And then you took the island Russian lizard and it's only eight points. And you said, you know what? Their stomachs elongated, their diet changed from being majority protein to now it's, you know, a herbivore or whatever, and you want to make it its own species and it fits the criteria, rock and roll. I'm with you. You want to split it, split it. But you don't split it just because you stuck it on an island and all of a sudden now it's a lighter color because the sand is lighter and they're covered in sand and whatever else. Like you, you have to follow the checklists, so to mm-hmm. speak. But you also have to look at how nature works where evolution doesn't happen by the individual. Evolution happens by like it happens from percentages in a population, say 
you're looking at with those lizards, the length of their digestive system is longer on the ones on the island on average than the ones on the mainland. You could probably still find ones on the mainland with a probably a similar stomach length. It's just where does the average fall is mm-hmm. kind of what you have to look at because there's going to be big swaths of variation in most populations. It's a little bit different on islands because islands it's not a big environment, so there's only a small range of looks and uh, phenotypical variation that can exist. But yeah, I mean that's kind of how it. Have to look at that. Is are they really that different on that island, or is it just kind of you can find ones on the mainland that look like that, and it just happens to be all the ones on this island because they're on their own trajectory now are slightly different than the ones on the mainland, even though you can still find ones on the mainland that are like the ones on the island. I don't know if I did a good job explaining. Yeah, no, that. I, I get that. I, I can agree with that. I agree with that one hundred percent. Which reminds me of uh, Lepidophyma. Uh, uh, Lepidophyma, uh, the yellow spotted night lizards, uh, Flavum maculatus, right? Hmm. The, there's a Costa Rican pocket that are parthenogenic. There are no males. They're all female, and they produce one to five clones, identical clones of themselves, every three to five years. Hmm. There are other Lepidophyma Flavum maculata in southern in the southern regions of Central America that do have males. So is that is that one parthenogenic population a different species? No, they're the same species because they fit the criteria. They fit the checklist, but they're totally different because there's no boys, right? And they Mm -hmm. produce parthenogenic clones of themselves. So in theory, if you took out enough of that clone line, right, eventually it's all going to be the exact same DNA verbatim, spot for spot, like, like cloned sheep. So is that its own species or is that just a divergent you know, offshoot. I don't even think it classifies as subspecies. I think no, it's, I mean, it's just still flavomaculatus. So there's a weird example of something like that in plants too, where uh, it's a kind of a common one you learn in like population genetics classes and stuff like that, where say you have a group of flowers, right? They bloom May 3rd every year. Then you have, and they only bloom for like four or five days. You have a mutation in that population where all of a sudden they all bloom on June 2nd, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a recessive gene. It exists in the originals. So now you have a group that is isolated from the other, from one recessive gene, where there's a little bit of gene flow coming in from the, the May 3rd population going into the June 2nd population, but there's no backtracking. So are they different species where you have – the June 2nd population can never reproduce with the May 3rd population ever again because of one gene difference. So now they're off on their own trajectory even though they are completely identical. And sometimes you can even have one population have a – you know, even if there's like slight changes going on in one, you can still have it carry on. But it only goes one way. So it's interesting com- compared with the, the spirit bear analogy, you know, the, the, the analogous uh, example with the spirit bear, or the white, you know, black, black bears, where it's a single gene, they become white, but are they, they're interbreeding obviously with each other because if a female can have both <laughs> spirit and normal bears or whatever, uh, or, or it's just a recessive mutation. So they still have that uh, recessive gene or the, and the dominant gene. So, um, but 
you know, in one case, you'd probably say, sure, they, they've probably changed enough to be different species if they're not even uh, interacting with each other reproductively, whereas the other one, that may not be far enough of a, a criteria. But I, I don't know how that would you know, necessarily say that taxonomy is invalid, but, uh, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think I don't think that it should be a different species just because now you're saying it is physically incapable of reproducing from cross pollination of the, of the initial genes. Yeah. So, again, this is kind of like a, it's a it's a yeah. um, it's a hypothetical in a way that's kind of thrown around a lot of uh, okay. like population genetics classes. It's just it kind of it's one of those things where you get people thinking. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, but I don't like, think. How would you classify this? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Where, in theory, it would be the, it would be, still be the same plant, though. It's still the same species of plant. It's just that strain, that group, is incapable of breeding with the other group. Yeah, I mean, it's weird where it becomes like an island species, even though they might be growing right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, Are and the I same think color. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's a hypothetical. They're purple flowers. Who knows? Oh, okay. It's yeah. it's a hypothetical that's kind of gone in to teach like okay this is how things can separate from each other even but it hasn't actually happened huh has I mean, it actually I think, happened i think it has happened i don't know exactly okay. what species of flower it is but it also kind of tells you how things can split from each other without having any kind of geographical barriers or anything like that mm-hmm. you know i've also heard uh examples of butterflies where okay say the females are attracted to red and one day a color mutation pops in because it's linked to a digestion gene. So all of a sudden the females who have this gene where they suddenly can't see red have to figure out another way to be attracted to a male. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like it's, it's weird ways like how things separate. Well, isn't that kind of the idea behind species differentiation is, is that yeah. they change randomly that, some of those changes become significant enough to make them <laughs> split off from, from the common ancestor um, that they came from. And, and eventually, you know, they have a bigger beak. So all of a sudden they just want to breed with birds that have similar beak size. And then all of a sudden you got all these Galapagos finches with different beak sizes and different niches and there different yeah. numbers. So, yeah, it's, I don't really know how it goes to the, the topic at hand other than kind of showing, you know, nature's, kind of messy and it's hard to put it in a box mm-hmm. but i mean you can even look at it with that finch example they may be able to interbreed with the other you know a short beak finch may be able to reproduce with a long beak 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 finch i can't speak mm-hmm. but they're you know you get a medium-sized beak uh, offspring that is completely worthless mm-hmm. they think that happens with the dart frogs too where you, know, you have some red ones and some uh blue ones and then they cross together, but the purple ones have nowhere they fit in in the environment. Hmm. You know, they may be fully capable of reproducing with each other, but the hybrid they produce is invalid, yeah, so it dies. You're so saying it the, pushes the each mule. other apart. Yeah, a mule is not a species. Well, I, I mean, mule's not a species. They, but this is a little bit I, different. Yeah, the offspring can still reproduce, and ha- you know, the the weak build or the the medium sized beak finches could still breed and make more medium-sized beak finches, but they're not adapting to the environment. So that change, yeah, they is have not no place adapted. in the environment. So they die, even yeah. though they're completely fine genetically. Well, and, and just the ability to breed with a different species, I, I, and that's, that's kind of what, uh, 
you know, kind of what the authors in that Anteresia paper seem to be claiming is that because there is some overlap in range between all of the Stimson's python, you know, they, they've noted some that were this different genotype that, that were infiltrated into the other genotype. That means they're all the same species because they could interbreed if, if, because they overlap in range. And I, I kind of reject that a little bit, you know, like, like yeah, for example, that. just because the long beak finch can breed with the short beak finch, that doesn't make them necessarily the same species because typically they don't interbreed but they can, you know, so, you know, how, how do you draw that line? That's, I guess that's the trick. And, and should our species concepts evolve and, and should we adopt, you know, a, a, a kind of a level playing field, you know, a single uh, species concept for a group like, you know, the, the lizards or snakes or whatever, you know, can we, can we apply a single species concept to all lizards or all snakes, you know? How does that, I, I guess maybe we're not the right people to answer that question, but it's something to think yeah, about. I think I it, it, it's kind of like just because I'm, I'm a layman, right? Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to say is if, a, if the blue animal, the blue animal can breed with blue animals and the red animal can breed with red animals and the blue and the red can breed and they produce a purple. Now the purple can breed to the blue. It's still a blue species. If the purple breeds to a red, it's still a red species. But purple cannot breed to purple, and therefore purple is not its own species. So, so if purple yeah. can breed to each other, yeah. And then, yeah, so example, so let's say yeah. that you have, I don't know, a, a blue rocks and red rocks, right? And there's birds that come in and eat stuff. So the ones that are blue live on the blue rocks, they blend in. The ones that are red live on the red rocks, they blend in. They can breed with each other, at least for now. The problem is when they breed together, they make a purple. And the purple can't blend in anywhere. So if you if you took that animal in captivity and just raised them without the predators, they'd be fine, and you could have as many purples as you want. But in the environment where it happens, they may be completely genetically fine and completely genetically capable of breeding. They just don't have a place in the environment where they can survive. Well, and really, I think it and again, more this than, is just uh, yeah, yeah but, be, but they're still just all the same species, right? And, and, and in For that now, example, yeah. I mean, you, you need more than just um, a color change. You know, there, there has to be something yeah. that, that separates yeah. we're, the two We're obviously groups. making it simplistic as hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so maybe, you know, if you did have a purple and they fit fit better, like, you know, down in this environment. And so they, they moved and, and separated from the reds and the blues and made a third, you know, species that was a hybrid of the two. But then they went off on their own evolutionary trajectory, found their own niche in the environment, and then they you know, over time, do they, you know, how long do they need to become a different species? Um, they don't interbreed because if the purples go into the blues, then they get eaten by a, a bird, you know? So there's kind of that physical separation. Does that mean they're new species? And do we characterize them as such, even though their DNA hasn't changed all that much other than the, the, you know, red and blue shift to purple, but. Sure. <laughs> that, 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 that could be a, val- a valid subspecies. Good, yeah. yeah, we, we've never even we really didn't even touch on the concept of subspecies because there are yeah. some people that are legitimate splitters who don't agree with the concept of a subspecies mm-hmm. or yeah. even sub yeah. suborder subfamily. They don't they don't agree with it. 
Well, and if and, so, if, and if you're just looking at DNA and you don't and you're they're all pickled, so they're all kind of gray colored, and there's no blue or purple or red, right. then you're saying, ah, oh, all the DNA is the same; they're the same species. But the guy right. who's out in the environment looking at the blue and purple and you know red species all split off in their different environments and and not interbreeding with each other's populations, although they could. They're not, you know, because they, they don't venture into each other's territory very often. Maybe it happens once in a while. But are they different species, even though they're genetically very similar? And maybe well, that economist is, is a gene jockey. So he says, no, nope, no, nope, they don't meet the criteria. <laughs> and I think we yeah, see a lot of that. Herpers know, you know, the the behavior or the, where they're where they're located and they're saying look these things don't overlap at all in the environment yeah they have like you can find them in the same region but they're in completely different habitats and you know, I, you know. I think I think it goes to people in the new millennia are fixated with the 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 DNA aspect of it mm-hmm. and they're so it's so new to us it's so fascinating to us that. We fixate on it, we dwell on it, and we assume that that's the end-all, be-all. So, again, going back to the whole duck with the fuzzy feet, if the duck with the fuzzy feet has different DNA, it it may be a different species because it's got fuzzy feet, but it's still a duck. It just may may not be the same species of duck. Or better yet, someone says, hey, they have the same DNA, but they still make it separate because it's got fuzzy feet. Well, I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to the individuals and not upholding. I'm going to circle back to it because I'm that guy. It, those people not upholding the Linnaean rules or whatever we want to call them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So talking about that again, uh, we'll look at pythons. Depending on which species opinion you use, species concept, you could say – Ball pythons and blood pythons are the same species or I mean there's even people in the reptile world right now and I mean who knows they say like look bloods and short tails should be their own genus they should be their own thing right now because they're different than anything else they live in these isolated environments they do the same uh, they do the same thing niche wise you know but if you believe if you breed a blood python and a Burmese python you can produce F3, F4, F5 generation hybrids by breeding those back to each other. So are they different? I I don't know. It literally depends on whose taxonomic, taxonomic opinion is going to be said. I, yeah. I, I think it maybe just comes down to like, so if, if they were different genus, would it matter? Would it make them different, you know, the same thing if they're in the same genus? You know, obviously, that you know, that that kind of gives credence to the the fact that they're more, you know, split up or, or diverged to some extent. So, you know, you can use that and say, look, this this shows how divergent they are. Um, we're giving them their own genus or, you know, or we're resolving paraphily where, you know, you've got a different genus in the middle of, you know, a, a, the same genus. So you've got to resolve that. And and there's been a lot of that, too, with the gene stuff. You know, they can they can see maybe cryptic diversity that you can't really see with physical characteristics. But um, I, I don't know. It's it's a really difficult line to draw to say this is a species, but or or this is a biologically significant entity regardless of whether it has its own genus name or has its, you know, if 
I guess it, it does it even matter? You know, that's, that's yeah. And I think it, I, I'm, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot with this one, but us as humans, us as herpers and animal people, we love unique and independent stuff, right? So mm-hmm. all these people that, that, you know, the chondro people, they're up in arms about this whole reclassification thing. But I bet you if somebody said officially on record that, you know, there's four different types of bloods and five different types of quote unquote short tails or Borneos or black bloods from, cause I'm old and I can say that it, would they be happy about it or would they not be happy about it? Because some half people would be half it. wouldn't half, be right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Half don't well, like taxonomy. Half might love taxonomy. I don't know. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah. I think you guys have talked about this on NPR before. We're like people love new names people loved oh i've i don't have brongersmai anymore i don't or i do you mm-hmm. know uh, my yeah. brongersmai right mm-hmm. so people like that stuff but it depends on do the is it being done because we like it or is it being done because it's correct yeah and and i guess that goes back to like you know if you're if you're learning about the animal in its natural environment and you're understanding kind of Okay, there are some subtle differences that maybe the taxonomists aren't getting. This is a biologically significant trait or whatever. I mean, I look at the green tree pythons and they're just bred every which way from, you know, there's no. And now and now we know they're two different species and several different subspecies, but it doesn't matter. They're interbred, so they're just a mishmash of everything. But if you keep things, you know, like locality specific, you're you're probably going to run into less issues than if you're just breeding it, you know, to oh, things yeah. that look similar, you know, from the top and bottom of New Guinea, like, ah, who cares? Just breed them together, you know. When it turns out they're they're different species down the road, then you just have a jumbled mess. Whereas if you're kind of looking at localities, I don't know, maybe just kind of a way to bring this okay. topic back to yeah, yeah. practicality so, and herpeticulture, you know? So look, so let me ask you this. So you keep Western blackheads, right? Mm-hmm. So forgive me for my ignorance, but are Westerns a different species than the rest? Not currently. No, they're, they're just the locality. Do you believe they should be? They're they're very different. I mean, I, there could be an argument to say they are different enough to warrant either sub you know race or subspecific status. I'm not going to breed my westerns with an eastern. That's for sure. Sure. You know? sure. But, but that, and but I, that's the thing. Has anyone done the homework and done the DNA and done the the mm-hmm. the in depth study of the individual? specimens at hand yeah not not even close you know and that's the trick is like there's so many things that need to be resolved but there's limited funding and limited you know yeah because the the rest of the world doesn't even know it's a python yeah (laughs) and and the only ones who like it (laughs) and for some things maybe there's not a lot in in, you know they they discovered those uh underwoodosaurus uh siorsis that were out in the middle of western australia and they look different and i remember seeing them you know many many years ago going Oh, that's different. That's something that's yeah. something new. That's a different species. And it took, you know, another 10, 15 years to say, yes, it's officially a different species. But if you're just like, ah, it's it's underwoodosaurus milli, you know, it's a it's a barking. I'm just going to breed it to my underwoodosaurus milli because I only have one, you know. Well, who cares then? It's like now you've just yeah. got a hybrid. So well, that goes to like the husbandy, right? Yeah. So I don't, there's only, it's only referenced from what I gather. And you wrote the book. So you please correct me (laughs) if I'm wrong. There's no paper on husbandy. It's just that one gecko book that no one can, no one has because they can't afford it. Uh Well, I I think husband, yeah, that husband I came from, from herpeticulturists in in Europe. 
So oh, it, really? Okay. Yeah, and just just based on like, oh, it comes from a different area of Australia, and and again, you know, it could just be a locality. And and right. calling it husband eye is that a bad thing? Maybe not. And maybe no. down the road it will be a different species, and they'll recognize that, and that's fine too. But from what I could tell, there was no concrete scientific evidence to show that it was a different species. Right. Right. Just or because you have, just because you have a darker colored more cold tolerant Millie does not necessarily mean that it's its own species. Yeah. But the, but the, the keepers in Europe, you know, kept this new South Wales line going and somebody came up with the name. Now, from what I gathered, the, the one book, the, the unobtainium gecko book, that's a thousand dollars on Amazon. Eric mm-hmm. Burke has one. He think he paid a hundred bucks for it. That jerk. Um, <laughs> it, that's the only reference that I know that has any kind of, scientific description of the husband your husband die so yeah is it, are people really using it is it is it real well it again real? I, I think it's mainly used in europe just by herpticulturalists it's not really a, a scientifically used concept as far as i know it from you know my research into the book <laughs> yeah. um but, you know, I could have some, you know, bunch of Europeans screaming at the computer or their, their phone saying, you idiot, there's clear evidence, you know, and there could yeah. be. So I feel, like, you know. I feel like this episode is going to be a rough one for that, too. We're going to have <laughs> oh, yeah. we're, we're making somebody mad when they listen. To yeah. yeah. 100%. Well, and, and hey, you know, come on, come, come correct us, come put us in our place, because it would be nice. I mean, you know, obviously we want we, we should have, you know, people like. Dr. Loafman and, you know, a bunch of the, the true taxonomists that know what they're talking about. And, you know, I talked to him about the Anteresia paper and he's like, oh, yeah, if that was crayfish, they'd be all sorts of different species. But since it's a python, you know, they're going to lump them all into one because of those taxonomists feel that that's the species concept they want to follow, even though it's kind of an outdated, outmoded species concept in other circles. Sure. You know, even probably within Python uh, classifications, but that's what they used. And so that's what we were going by, or at least some people are going by. I kind of reject it and I'm not going to call my Stimson's Python's children. I, but that's just my, <laughs> my preference, I suppose. So hold on, going back to the blood Python comment you made, sure. where that's okay. If bloods and short tails were classified as a new genus or classified as a new species of Python, would that really change anything? I mean, the answer is completely no, where they're still going to fit in the same spot on the tree of life that Uh they have always sat on, which I mean, honestly, that's kind of why I like phylogenetic trees way more Mm -hmm. than I like taxonomy uses them. But that's why I like phylogenetic trees way more than I like, you know, well, this species scale counts here, this species scale counts here, all that kind of stuff. Mm hmm. The problem with the phylogenetic trees is they fail the blue red, the blue frog, red frog, purple frog test. You know that's kind of where, even in a way more refined version of classifying life like phylogenetic trees are, there's still major problems in the actual application of them. Yeah, yeah. Blood pythons fit where they are going to fit, no matter what. When you actually yeah, who knows? Sequence their whole DNA and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't know where they fit in taxonomically. It's up to where you feel like your species concept needs to be. <laughs> yeah, 
that's yeah. i mean that's the the trick and it's really difficult to to draw those lines sometimes it's more of a web sometimes than it is like a a tree you know it's like these yeah, might I mean, come back and converge and, and diverge at different times in evolutionary history so how do lobs of watercolor paint together and try <laughs> yeah. to decide like where certain colors happen yeah and just because two species may meet and and occasionally interbreed does that mean they're the same species you know I, that's that's a tricky thing to say and and maybe back in time they came from the same you know the uh, same progenitor but you know they've they've diverged and they've become somewhat different in that time i i heard an interesting um uh podcast i think is the aussie wildlife guys and they were talking about the inland carpets and some of the offshoots or you know different species that are that kind of come in contact or, or near contact with those and they look very similar and have a similar habitat and things but um genetically look maybe a little different and there's some different ideas and and concepts about that but he was talking about forgive me I, i'm not recalling his name i'm terrible with names but um talked about how those uh you know you you need to look at what's biologic no this was a different one this was a chameleon podcast <laughs> podcast talking about chameleon diversity in madagascar and stuff but anyway he was talking about you need to look at what's biologically significant and you know if if that's that's something that's uh more important than you know dna or whatever then so be it but that's really hard to define sometimes and and to make a clear division but i don't know that was probably yeah, I, much I, nonsense I, there no 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 no. that was that was good because it brings me back to the Tushis thing where it for all intents and purposes it's a green semi-arboreal python and it was the dna and and the locality separation the spacing that really made them different species well right? it, i mean herper, herpers knew that they were different there was all sorts of traits you know the head the head length you know on the biox was much longer than the ones down in the south and so there were all sorts of those things that like when when herpers read the paper they're like yeah no duh you know anybody who knew green tree pythons well enough and i i was not one of those guys so but like i remember ryan young and nick like of course you know that's and, and it's interesting that it fits the same um, distribution pattern and, and, sp and split up as, as a lot of other things in New Guinea. Obviously there, are, you know, geological events that, that split things up on the Island the way they did. There's crocodiles on, you know, each side of the Island that, that key out maybe differently now and should be different species potentially. Um, there's a lot of things that kind of, kind of follow that same thing. Cassowaries, you know, you have Northern and Southern cassowary types and, all sorts of sugar things. gliders, yeah, all kinds of thing on that island. Yep, black and, snakes, and and you find the same kind of thing. Like the stuff that's in the southern part of New Guinea is also the same as the stuff that's in the northern part of Queensland. They're very genetically close. They've only been separated by about five thousand years, you know, ten thousand years at the most, and so they're they're very very similar, and they probably should not be different genetically or, or, or taxonomically, you know. But they're also separated by water right now, so maybe you know they're not yeah. interbreeding right now. So yeah. are they on their own evolutionary trajectory? And how long does that trajectory need to be there? Because eventually they're going to come back into contact. There's going to be land between Australia and New Guinea again, and they'll have a chance to, you know. So 
where do you draw the line? When is it long enough that they've been separated long enough to be different species? Yeah, but why does it why does it have to be long enough? You know what I mean? Because we're always talking about yeah. how science evolves and adapts and changes, and you know what I mean. Like I feel like maybe this is the wrong thing to say for this kind of fight, but I feel like Casey and I are almost both right. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? That's the beauty of it. Is because both is, sides have a yeah, lot of validity, right? I feel like I feel like my whole concept of having you know the 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 checklist is valid but casey's rebuttal of nobody's following the checklist they're just doing what they want is also valid (laughs) so i mean what do you what do you say yeah and that's the beauty of most of these topics is you can you know that both sides are probably right in, in a lot of what they're saying so taxonomy is quite ridiculous in many aspects but it's also quite important in many aspects so i know, love it. yeah it's, i'm a total nerd for this stuff man i love it. I'm, I'm fun to cool. chat about it again like you know i'm playing the part of a belligerent anti anti-taxonomist but like it, it's super fascinating yeah. yeah 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 and and some of those examples you brought up are really fun to think about too you know how um the the flowers and the different colored frogs and stuff that's that's fun to think about and you know those are those are those those are those lessons for a reason you know that's why they're teaching that in and yeah. genetics classes or whatever so you can kind of see how complex things can be and how um, a single change might be very biologically significant whereas another may not be so biologically significant so well have we uh worn ourselves out with this discussion you guys had a good place you want to have a final statement or you think we're there uh, i'm good if casey's good I, i'm good i wouldn't <laughs> even know what to say so yeah <laughs> uh, I, I i love these uh you know uh discussions these uh academic discussions they're they're fun to do and you know hopefully we aren't ignorant enough to just have everybody screaming at us going you don't have any clue about what's going on in Texas." that's fine that's fine too yeah Yeah. they got two they got two choices they can either (laughs) they can either bitch and moan or they can offer to send us to an academic institution for a lecture or uh, multiple lectures on taxonomy, in which case we will graciously accept. Or come on Reptile Fight Club and tell us. Or come on Reptile Fight Club. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I'll fly on the wall for that one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate you coming on. This is a fun topic. I It drives me nuts sometimes to, to think about it, but I also see the importance of taxonomy. And we, we do, it does help to have, you know, that binomial nomenclature to have the little label that we can affix that is, is consistent from one country to the next. And we don't get bogged down with all these weird common names that are regional at best sometimes. So... Thanks again for uh, coming on. It's great to have you guys back on and I always enjoy your discussions. So thank Thank you. you. Um, We'll thank uh, Morelia Python Radio Network um, for their support of the show and check them out on their website, uh, moreliapythonradio.com. Follow them on all their social meds and and check out what they've got coming up. We, they just put out a video of the, the trip we had down to Arizona. So that was fun to relive yeah. some of those moments and see some of the footage that Owen got on the trip. So check that out on YouTube. That was a fun thing. Any uh, great podcasts lately that you guys have tuned into that have kind of been impressive for you? Venom Exchange Radio. Oh yeah, I'm I'm enjoying those. When's your next one out? Have you Sunday had, comes Sunday? out this Sunday? Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I really like the discussion with uh, was it Kyle Vargas? Yeah, yeah, that was he's fun. great, man. 
Yeah, you yeah. can't get enough of him in one show. You got to do a bunch of shows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had he had a lot of knowledge. That was fun to listen yeah, to. Yeah, cool stuff. Well, way to go. You you got anything, Casey? Anything? Um, nothing for me. Worthy? I will say that Dominique's uh, new episode where she on the modern Medusa, the modern Medusa podcast where she interviews Shannon Wild is a pretty good oh, one. I've been listening yeah. to it. Uh, yeah. a lot today i'm really fascinated with wildlife photography so sure. you need to hear something from someone of that caliber it's really awesome oh, so yeah. she does yeah, casey's a got a crush casey's got a crush <laughs> she's married i know <laughs> <Back off>, canon <laughs> she's also yeah, like her, infinitely her, cooler than me like it it'd be just a step down so you know <laughs> her husband's a, a wildlife videographer right doesn't he do a lot of video stuff i remember seeing them they were on a, a, a youtube i guess they had a youtube video out for like promotional for the red line uh, cameras video cameras and stuff looked really cool they're like modular units and they're really high-tech high-end stuff and they yeah. look pretty sweet but the footage they were getting with those was ridiculous but yeah. they had a bunch of footage that they'd taken in komodo and in africa and stuff that they put up on youtube so check that out yeah shannon wild is awesome like she's yeah and they're talking a lot about those those like trips and stuff like that how you know there's different trips to komodo where first one they went is basically tourists the next one they had like an actual film crew following them around and like mm-hmm. making a documentary about them making a documentary yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty cool i'll have to listen to that i haven't i haven't heard that yet dominique's doing some great work though she's yeah, she is. yeah yeah well, cool guys. Uh, you want to throw out your contact info or? Well, yeah. my name's Phil and you can find me at knobtails.ig and on the Herpetoculture Network. Snakes and Stogies is a live uh, podcast every Monday night on the Herpetoculture Network. So yeah. check it out. Fun stuff for sure. How about you, Casey? Yeah, I'm uh, Casey Cannon. You can friend me on Facebook or uh, go to Canfire Reptiles on Instagram. So, awesome. Yeah, that's about it i don't have a podcast nothing like that i <laughs> commandeer yeah. different people's podcasts you're you're yeah you're on podcasts enough that you you might as well have your own yeah well i guess you kind of yeah you're involved with a lot of good good stuff so thanks thanks for coming on here again um check out australian addiction reptiles that's my website i actually updated it recently so nice some, is, uh, is the shirts and swag available <laughs> i i don't have that up and i've got a bunch of shirts in my office at work just tell me what you want and i i'll see nice. if i've got it yeah <laughs> I've, cool. I've got kind of limited I, i've sold out on a lot of the sizes but i've still got a few shirts left yeah i'll have to send yeah i was there. watching the npr video from arizona you uh, holding that one snake with your with your uh, logo yeah. on the shirt and i was like <laughs> how do i get that shirt yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let me know. I'll send you over one if I've got the the right size. Cool. All right. Thanks again, guys. And thanks again for listening to Reptile Fight Club. Peace out. Fight Club.